I face the barren waste without the taste of water. All right, we are back. We're hoping before this program is over to hear from our good friend, Benjamin Jonas. Benjamin is currently involved with the Voice of America operations, broadcasting media into Iran, and that, of course, uh, is very important. The people of Iran now need some outside sources of data as, uh, as chaos is enveloping the nation. We hope that Benjamin will be able to talk to us a bit about that, although I know he can't go into a great deal of details because some of it is, I imagine, rather, um, rather sensitive politically. Although, in truth, it, it may be hard for him to find a time for us. Uh, they've, been, they've been looked at by ABC World News, by NBC, CNN, The Wall Street Journal, NPR, The Washington Post, Al Jazeera, and quite a bunch and, and quite a lot of foreign media outlets. So we do have to stand in line. And uh, we may not get to him today. As we're waiting, I'd like to address a story we've, we've talked about numerous times on this program, the issue of uh, loss of biodiversity. Article from New Scientist magazine, rather ironic story, noting that the Quechua Indians of Peru uh, may be vital for the future of the potato because they are the people out there that are continuing to grow various varieties of this crop and as the uh, world climate continues to change they may be the ones that are the stewards of the genetic material we may need in the not too distant future apparently there's an effort to pay these peruvian farmers to look after their uh, diverse collection of potatoes they're going to try and grow varieties at different altitudes and different climactic conditions so that if the commercially available potato varieties of today start to fail in the world, well, they'll be able to supply the replacement varieties needed. This apparently is a practical element of the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. Uh, the auspices of this, this group apparently um, led to the International Seed Bank up in Svalbard, Norway. And as we talked about on this program, one of the downsides of uh, uniformity of crops and these high-yield varieties is that you lose genetic variability. And when a, um, a pest develops, like um, a rust, fungus, whatever, that can attack um, the potato, as, as happened in Ireland back in the 1840s, having a lack of variety in your crop can mean that the whole dang thing can get wiped out uh, in no time. So we, we certainly applaud this effort in South America. Joining us now in the program is a guy we've been in pursuit of for some time, Dan Bacher. You've read his works in the Sacramento News and Review. You may have seen him on truthout.org. He's doing some fine work uh, related to water and fisheries, and we're proud to finally say, uh, Dan Bacher, welcome to Radio Parallax. Good afternoon there, Doug. Well, I don't know where to begin with you because you've written so many great articles in the past year or two. Uh, I, I guess we should start with a topic that's near and dear to both our hearts, the peripheral canal. Yes. The governor is continuing to push the peripheral canal. Um, he did it at a meeting down in Mendota last week, when on uh, the previous day at a meeting in Fresno, he'd, he'd been, uh, been uh, protested 
by some local agribusiness folks that felt he wasn't doing enough for them. Uh-huh. And so he recommitted himself to supporting a peripheral canal and more dams, a thing that fishermen, delta farmers, and principled environmental groups are completely opposed to because what a canal around the delta would do is create the infrastructure to take more water out of the delta at a time that we have all these collapsing fish populations, such as uh, Central Valley salmon, delta smelt, longfin smelt, green sturgeon, uh, um, juvenile striped bass, and another species that's being impacted by all these water exports is the southern resident population of killer whales. They feed on Central Valley salmon. It's a large part of their diet, and as the salmon go, so do the killer whales. Well, Dan, you and I have talked about this. We work out in the same gym, and and I know... Well, let me just say, my opinion has always been that this peripheral canal is just simply a, a, a better way to steal more water and ship it south, and how fair a statement do you think that is? That That's a great statement. You summed it up in a nutshell. <laughs> um, you know, now there's there's a, a lot of movement by some environmental groups to sugarcoat the canal as good for the ecosystem, saying that you could create a canal that's good for the ecosystem, and that, that includes Nature's Conservancy, um, who are in support of a canal. Um However, the thing that I say to all canal advocates is I ask them two questions, okay? The first, give me one example in world or U.S. history where a canal has taken less water out of (laughs) an ecosystem rather than more. And number two, and related, is give me one example in U.S. or world history where a diversion canal has resulted in better fish populations and a more healthy ecosystem. And nobody yet has been able to provide me with an example to an answer uh, to either of those questions. Well, this topic is not going away. We've had Matt Weiser from the Bee has been covering this pretty well uh, on before, and I hope we'll have you back on to discuss this as this continues to unfold. And this is really going to heat up because Secretary of Interior Ken Zalazar will speak at a town meeting in Fresno, and location is still to be announced on Sunday from 2.30 to 4 p.m. And he's expected to field a bunch of complaints from corporate agribusiness that they aren't getting enough water from the Central Valley and California water projects. And it's also certain that there will be people there like Westlands Water District and other corporate agribusiness interests that will be pushing for the canal and more dams. At a time when that's the absolute last thing we need, we need less water exports out of the Delta to protect these imperiled fish species. Well, my, my guess is, we speculate on the show on numerous occasions about this, is the whole point of the canal is to get water upstream so you can be guaranteed to be able to ship more high-quality water south. And that's really the only reason that they're going to build it. Right. And one thing that it does is it transfers the impacts uh, on the fishery from the San Joaquin side, the south side of the delta, up to the north side, the Sacramento River side. And that, the Sacramento River is the main channel through which 
um, the West Coast salmon runs go through. In other words, the largest run south of the Columbia is the Sacramento River. And because of the collapse of that run um, this year and last, salmon fishing off the coast has been completely closed except for a limited 10-month or 10-day season in late August and early September to target um, Klamath River Chinooks at the mouth or near the mouth of the Klamath on the north coast. So, um, you know, it, 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 in my opinion, make things much worse. And the thing is that, you know, the government and agribusiness will argue, well, we'll put in good screens to prevent the fish from getting killed. But right now, in the pumps in the South Delta, after 10 years of, of, of you know, having been ordered to do it, they still haven't put in state-of-the-art screens to stop killing salmon, delta smelt, sturgeon, steelhead, um, striped bass, and all sorts of other fish in the pumps. And so it's not likely that they're going to, if they put in a canal, in, um, besides exporting water out of the delta and hurting the ecosystem dramatically, it, it would also result in a, in a lot of fish that would be killed in, in the pumps themselves that suck up the water. Though they, they refer to this as the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. But right. the truth is, there's parts of the San Joaquin River that are basically sand beds. The river's gone. Right. They pump so much right. water, it doesn't even exist anymore. Right. And there is a federal plan now to restore the river that um, Congress just authorized a couple months ago, the money to restore the river, but that's going to take a long time, I mean, in increments. And essentially, right now, at this time, the river, after it, after it flows through um, Friant Dam, there's a, there's a trickle water that goes down. It sustains a live river for miles away for the riparian water users, and then it just dries up in the sands. Yeah. And they do, they've done that on purpose. The reason why they've done that on purpose is that so no salmon can go above, because if salmon or steelhead do go above into the cold water section, tailwater section of the river below the dam, then, then, you, <laughs> then environmentalists and fishermen and Indian tribes could argue, well, you do have a run there right now, even if it's stray run, and you need to protect them. But right now, there is no run. But there are some measures to be made in the future, but it's, it's going to take you know, at least 20 years to restore that run. Meanwhile, we want to make sure that the Sacramento River salmon run, which, which um, up until just a few years ago was the largest run on the coast, is we want to make sure that it's restored. Yeah. to its former glory. And it's the main economic driver along the coast. It's what supports all the coastal communities like Fort Bragg and Brookings, Oregon, Harbor, Oregon. Um, I mean, the fact that the Sacramento system uh, has had problems affects the entire West Coast, Good including Lord. Washington and Oregon. Well, Dan, I appreciate you talking to us about this. Please come back again soon. I know that you've talked about the Delta smelt, the salmon at great length, and we need to, we need to stay on this topic, I think. Okay, th- and just one other thing. Um, there's going to be there's legislation brewing right now. Um, there's going to be a, a, a series of, of Delta bills that apparently are going to be put together in the legislature, and there's a tentative date 
set for the Assembly Water Parks and Wildlife Committee um, to propose these Delta bills, and that'll be July 7th, 2009, at 9 a.m. in room um, 4202. There's no definite, you know, type of bill that that's 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 there right now. In other words, it's going to be developed by that time, but fishery advocates fear that that final bill will include a peripheral canal, more dams. But nothing's certain yet on this. This is still up in the air. But, uh, you know, what I'd like to do is come back when I have a a definite idea of what's going to happen on this bill regarding the peripheral canal, more dams. All right. You got our number. When the t- We'll be talking. When Call us back as we as that approaches, and we will, uh, we will again kick it around. Thanks a lot, Doug. All right, Dan. Bye-bye. That was investigative journalist Dan Bacher, who has written many articles about the situation in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta and about our fisheries. He'll be back. You know, we have so many articles we want to talk about on the economy and and on science. I don't know where to begin. I guess, uh, let's see, I'll flip a coin. All right, let's see. Heads science, tails economy. Heads it is. Here's kind of a low-tech, interesting bit of science. Uh, Richard Wiseman of the University of, I guess it's Herefordshire, I may be getting that wrong, in, in Hatfield in the U.K., together with New Scientist magazine, enlisted thousands of Twitterers for an experiment into the paranormal. It's been noted that the U.S. government has spent millions of dollars trying to find out if psychic spies could identify distant location with mind power alone. These researchers, using nothing more than an iPhone and the social messaging service Twitter, decided to test the idea of remote viewing. So each day, Wiseman sent a tweet from one of five possible locations in Edinburgh, inviting guesses as to what he was looking at. What's curious is that believers and skeptics performed equally miserably in this experiment. However, after finding out the real answer, 31% of the believers said they had felt some link between their thoughts and the target, That's as opposed to 12% of the skeptics. Wiseman said he thinks this may explain why they believe in the paranormal. This type of creative thinking might make people see illusory relationships in the real world and help convince them that there are uncanny matches between their dreams and subsequent events. And researchers at Cornell, Yale, and Harvard surveyed people in several political swing states on their disgust sensitivity, which apparently included their revulsion at the prospect of touching a public toilet or drinking from a stranger's soda can. Turned out that respondents with a higher ick factor were more likely to have conservative views on a range of issues. These included immigration, abortion, and gay marriage. The researchers said the findings suggest that the same instinct that makes people recoil from potential hazards predisposes them to dislike anything that's unfamiliar, which thus colorizes their views on moral and political issues. Lead author David Pizarro told the Washington Times, People have pointed out for a long time that a lot of our moral values seem driven by emotions. In particular, disgust appears to be one of those emotions that seems to be recruited for moral judgments. And I mentioned earlier that uh, the that the H1N1 flu is uh, currently down in the southern hemisphere, but it's it's up here in America as well. Apparently, a bunch of Boy Scouts in North Carolina, 38 of them no less, got sick, and 10 of them were confirmed to actually have the swine flu. Come the fall, this will be making a a recurrence, I can assure you. And from the why didn't we think of that file comes this item, primatologist. 
Richard Wrangham has a new book out titled Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, and poses the notion that Darwin may have overlooked the most crucial step in human evolution. Because we do know that about 1.8 million years ago, our ape-like ancestors underwent a dramatic change in physical appearance, which the, during which the gut, jaw, and teeth all shrank while the, ba- while the brain began expanding. The consensus among evolutionary anthropologists has been that this new look was triggered by a shift to eating meat. Rangham thinks that makes no sense, because if you try, some, if you try eating raw antelope, you'll find that you've got to do a lot of chewing, you've got to expend a lot of energy, and uh, you, know, you, don't get the, you don't get the advantage from meat that we do by eating cooked meat. He suggests, therefore, that uh, our ancestors, Homo erectus, etc., may have been cooking food close to two million years ago, and that made all the difference. In reviewing the book, Dwight Gardner of the New York Times said, It's astonishing that Rangham can find no scientist before him who seriously argued the same case. His skillfully prepared brief makes the logic hard to escape. Adding that early on he delivers a thorough, thorough and delightfully brutal takedown, that's in quotes, of the contemporary raw food movement, showing that a diet limited to uncooked foods generates an insufficient energy supply and actually stops, stops menstruation and half of all women who try it. I did not know that, and frankly that may warrant some verification. But according to to Rangham, even individual castaways that he documents had to to cook food in order to survive. Of course, one fly in the ointment on this is, I don't think they've verified that cooking fires go back more than 800,000 years. But still, if you think about it, 800,000 years ago, we know uh, men were cooking, and, uh, and, or maybe probably the women were doing the cooking. If men had been doing the cooking, we'd have probably never survived. But modern man only emerged 100,000 years ago, so I, I think there's something to this. Which means, I suppose, I'm going to have to go out and buy the damn book. But if I do, and it, and it looks good, I will have to invite him on the show. Oh, and uh, speaking of that, there's a movie coming out next month starring Johnny Depp titled Public Enemies. It is based on the quite excellent book of the same name by Brian Burrow, and we're Proud to note that we interviewed Mr. Burrow a few years back, and that interview should be available on our website, which is radioparallax.com. So I would strongly recommend that before you go see Johnny Depp portray John Dillinger, you ought to hear what Mr. Burroughs had to say about the real Dillinger, who was, by all accounts, quite a guy. A dishonest man to be sure, and a bank robber to boot. But uh, if he were alive today, he'd probably be running Lehman Brothers. And our uh, move into, uh, into economics allows my seamless segue into uh, the rise and fall of General Motors. We haven't been able to resist a few pot shots at GM on this program. Uh, the people who decided that the Hummer was the car of the future. But a week or two ago, uh, The Week magazine, as it so often does, had an excellent briefing section about General Motors, revealing some history which uh, I didn't exactly know and which I'd like to share which is that the company was founded by a flamboyant salesman named William Durant back in 1908. He started out with Buick as its sole holding and then proceeded to snap up 30 other car makers in one and a half years, including Oldsmobile, Pontiac, and Cadillac. This acquisition spree uh, saddled the company with debt it couldn't repay. Sound familiar? 
But then by 1912, GM's ba- bankers gave Durant the boot. He was eventually replaced by Alfred P. Sloan. Does that name ring a bell? The Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, uh, those uh, a group that furnishes a lot of uh, the broadcasting you see on the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Sloan uh, was described as a stiff, standoffish engineer whose innovations nevertheless rivaled those of Henry Ford, adding that while Ford and his assembly line revolutionized the way cars were manufactured, Alfred P. Sloan, who ran the company until 1956, revolutionized the ways they were marketed and sold. Sloan segmented the car market, then tried to appeal to every different segment. GM strove to supply a car, he said, for every purse and purpose. Chevrolet, said a GM executive, was for the hoi polloi. Pontiac was for the poor but proud. Oldsmobile for the comfortable but discreet. Buick for the striving. And Cadillac for the rich. GM was the first auto company to change its car's features and styling almost annually, meaning that if you owned last year's model, to be up to date, you had to go shell out some dough to buy the latest. Such marketing chicanery apparently made GM very rich. And although GM's unions have taken quite a few hits for their, uh, their greediness, apparently some of it deserved, the article pointed out that you really can't blame the workers for management's arrogance and complacency. But here's the part about the article that really captivated me. Apparently, uh, Nancy Rotering quit in frustration from GM back in 1987. I guess wrote about it, said the attitude at headquarters was, we're GM, we know everything, we don't need to change. And apparently, executives were literally walled off from the rest of the company behind double electronic doors, which were at the 14th floor of GM's Detroit headquarters. The executives entered the building through a private basement garage, took their gourmet meals in a private dining room and rarely interacted with customers or even their own dealers, which I think goes a long way toward explaining why it is GM seems so out of touch. Anyway, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. you do. 